0: Chapter 7. It's a little bit longer text this morning, and, and I'll explain how we're going to break it up, but first let me, just, let me just ask, who here likes losing? Don't raise your hands all at once. Elena. Proud loser. (laughs) Nobody likes to lose. Nobody likes to lose, but we gain a lot by losing. That's true in a practical sense, and it's true with regard to our salvation. Practically speaking, you win some, you learn some. You win some, you learn some. You don't learn as much celebrating a victory as you do when dealing with defeat. We gain a lot by losing. And with regard to our salvation, we gain everything by losing, don't we? We lose our lives for Christ's sake that we may find them in him. We talked earlier about that in the scripture lesson. So we're going to go through this chapter of Ecclesiastes this morning, chapter 7, looking at that theme, gaining by losing, and hopefully we'll see the, the value in Solomon's words here as they apply to our lives both, both physically, practically, and with regard to our salvation spiritually. All right, so Solomon nails us with a whole wave of proverbs right here at the front end of this chapter. And we're definitely gonna go through these verses one by one because proverbial statements are sort of standalone statements. And there is sort of a theme, but every one is just so, it's just packed real tight. And so we're going to read one at a time and we're going to unpack it and we'll move on and then I'll, I'll go on to read the rest of the chapter. So verses 1 through 13, I'll read these one by one. Let's begin by looking at verse 1. Solomon writes, God says, a good name is better than precious ointment in the day of death than the day of birth. A good name, he says. He says it's better to have a good name than precious ointment. Ointments and, and potions and perfumes and things like this aren't so precious to us now, but they were then. They were a big deal then. You think about the woman uh, with the, the alabaster vial, right, that breaks it and then anoints Jesus' feet with it, and, and the disciples get all upset, don't they? Why? They say because, you know, that could have been, that could have been sold for 300 pence and, and, and given to the poor. And a, a pence, y'all, was like a, an average person's daily wage. So 300 pence, that's like a year's salary. Okay? And you know that, that stuff, that, that perfume seems so insignificant to us. You know what they used it for? These expensive ointments and perfumes and stuff? Healing and burial. So just as a good name is more precious than that, so is the day of death. What that investment was for, the day of death, than the day of birth. The day of death has more to teach us than the day of birth. That's what Solomon's saying. Read verse 2 now. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. It's one of those hard sayings, and mourning, quite frankly, doesn't sound as much fun as feasting. But the lessons we pick up in our mourning are more valuable than any we pick up in our celebrating, aren't they? When we're celebrating, there's no reason to consider life's brevity or come to grips with our human limitations. At a celebration, we're not, we're not in our heads, really. We're not in our feelings. The mood is light. But in the house of mourning, the mood is heavy and more thoughtful. The, the facts of life appear more plainly to us. Have you guys ever heard the, the saying that funerals are for the living? They are, it's true. I mean, they honor the dead, but funerals are for the living. And you, you think about it, what makes you ponder your own mortality and purpose in life and eternal things more? A birth announcement or an obituary? There are times for celebration and party, partying. And it's not wise to say that those are the good times, but the times of mourning, those are the bad ones. Solomon tells us that back in chapter 3. Remember, he says there's a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. And these times, if you remember from that sermon, they're, they're not random, they're not chance events, they are appointed by God. Those times of mourning are good because they cause us to reflect on things that really matter. And sometimes they cause a person to look inward, to recognize who they really are. And, and if God is pleased, he, he, by his Holy Spirit, reveals their own sin to them, and they, they confess, they repent, and they turn to Christ and faith. That's, that's, how, that's how the Holy Spirit works, y'all. You know he does that, right? He, he, he reaches in and, and, and he removes what, what Scripture calls a heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh that feels that's alive and sensitive to the things of God, sensitive to his leading. That's what God does. I've only ever had the the opportunity to speak at a few funerals, but I can tell you, people are a lot more open to eternal matters and and soul stuff, that kind of talk, when they're seeing someone they loved lowered into the ground. They're more open then than they are at like a a, wedding wedding reception for example and this is right on the mark with the purpose of this book as a whole remember solomon's grounding us and keeping us from just being drunk on happy experiences all the time and waltzing through life like none of this really matters solomon forces us to take stock of the difficult realities of life under the sun so that we will hang our hope on heavenly realities all right let's read verses three and four together now sorrow is better than laughter For by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Sorrow and grief remind us of the vanity of life. That's what he's saying. Joy distracts us from the vanity of life. Sadness of face makes the heart glad. That's a weird one, but think about this. What's your face look like when you're forced to consider something deeply? When, when you know everything's on the line and you've got a choice to make, that choice is going to have consequences. And I mean, have you been there before? You know what I'm talking about? Have you been at this crossroads where you have to evaluate yourself and your situation? Have you ever experienced a season in your life where things just got real, real quick? It's gut check time. You know what I mean? What's your face look like then? There's probably a seriousness about you because it's not playtime anymore. It's go time, right? And you know that in your heart, but there's, there, but there's this other side of it, isn't there? Have you had the pleasure of seeing the other side? When there's some sort, some sort of resolution, or at the very least, you know, you move in this direction, you're not entirely sure that's the way that you ought to go, but you see the Lord's hand in it, and then you're kind of on another side where, where you, there's a resolve about you, and there's a peace in your heart, and it makes the heart glad, right? That's what he says there. The sad face makes the heart glad. And by the time you have the glad heart, you forget <laughs> it was a product of the sad face, of the seriousness of that moment that you'd just been through. So times of sorrow are good because we learn there. It's not easy to learn at recess. Solomon says it's the fool who chooses to stay at recess and ignore the madier, the the, madier, the weightier matters of life. You can use Mattier, though. You can quote me on that. sorry. All right, now, and here in the next verses, in 5 and 6, Solomon says, wise men want to be corrected. Fools just want to be entertained. He says it's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. You know, we, we live in a time. Let me say it this way. There is no such thing as a godless culture. I hear Christians say that a lot, and I understand what they mean when they say it, that we live in a time and a place in history and a part of the world where we deny the existence of God or his, his claim on our lives or, or anything else. We don't want him to be Lord over us. And so I, I get what they mean when they say that, that the culture denies the Christian God, the triune God of Scripture, but there is no such thing as a godless culture because every one of us was made for worship, and we will worship something. We will find something to worship. We will herald something as the ultimate good and acknowledge some authority and some standard of morality, and whatever that is, is your God. It's never a question of whether there is a God at the center of a particular culture. It's a question of which God. The God of our culture says it's a sin to rebuke somebody. That's the point I'm getting at in this verse. That's the moral code of conduct for our day. The greatest commandment, it seems is to love yourself with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And a second is like it. Love those who love and affirm you. And there's church discipline for breaking these commandments. You can get excommunicated for rebuking somebody and not affirming them in today's culture. Call a man in a dress, a man in a dress, and see if you don't get silenced and deplatformed after being shamed and hissed and mocked by the culture. Be the one voice of reason, for example, on a social media thread that says, that's not right, that, that there's a man competing in women's sports, that's, that's wrong, you can't do that. Be that one voice of reason, and our culture will excommunicate you for heresy like that. It's never a question of whether there's a God at the center of a culture, it's which God. It's never a question of should we or should we not legislate morality, that's all legislation is, that's all law is. So it's never a question of of if we're legislating morality, it's whose morality are we legislating. And social media, by the way, whether we recognize it or not, Now, we have varying opinions on on is it good, is it bad, is it all good, is it all bad, is it something in between. Whether we realize it or not, and whatever we may think about it, it is the town square of our day. And there are public hangings and executions every day there for blasphemy against the God of this culture. It's a sin to correct anyone. It's a sin to call sin, sin in our day. Solomon says, the wise want to be corrected. It's good for us. It's good for us to be corrected and to welcome that correction. It's not good for us to do whatever seems right in our own eyes and then be affirmed by idiots who just cheer us on in our foolishness. That's not wise. It's not good for us. He says it all over the place in Proverbs, and he says it again here. It's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools and he uses an illustration here he says in verse six for as the crackling of thorns under a pot so is the laughter of fools so let's say trevor's not here this morning i was thinking of him as i was i was thinking through this but because i've seen him build a fire let's say you've got a big pot that you're going to cook something in over a fire And rather than gathering kindling and logs and building up a proper fire, you just throw some dried up thorn bushes under there and they go up in a flash. That's that's the illustration. Well, that fire was worthless. It was all light and no heat. It's not getting the job done. That's what Solomon says the laughter of fools is like. It's vanity. It's meaningless. It's not lasting. Verses 7, 8, and 9, those following verses there, you can read along. These verses are about self-control overall. Integrity and honor are better than riches, he says. And part of integrity and honor is finishing what we've started. Verse 80 says, it's better as better the end of a thing than its beginning. And that, that sounds kind of, of, of dark and moody when, when we've been reading Ecclesiastes the past six chapters and come to this. It's hard to kind of get outside of that. It, it's not that what he's saying is it's better to complete something, right? There's excitement in the moment when you're first starting out into something, isn't there? You get really excited about starting something. Who, who's, who started a hobby that you never f- followed through with? Who's got a home project that was exciting to get started? You got the stuff for it. It was fun getting the stuff, but now the work comes in and, yeah, right? So that, that, that's what he's saying. It's, it's better to be patient and stick to it to the end. Better is the end of a thing than the beginning, It's better to bring that to completion, to be patient with it, to stick through it, rather than just being excited about it in the beginning when it's all talk and theory. And then the last part of verse 8, our translation reads, the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. But there's some imagery you get in the Hebrew that just has a hard time coming into the English. And what it literally says there is, better is length of spirit than height of spirit. How often do we hear in scripture about being long-suffering, right? And how often do we hear the word high being, um, talking about, you know, exalting oneself, being haughty, being proud? So you get the picture then, being patient and long-suffering, this length of spirit, this long-suffering, this endurance, this patient Patience is better than this high, high, proud height of spirit. That's sort of the picture that's playing out here. Being slow to anger, and that's exactly what he says in the next verse, verse 9. He says, be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. So again, verses 7 through 9, we're talking about self-control. Don't let your heart run away with you, he says, right? Don't let your heart run away with you. Exercise self-control. Now let's look at verse 10 together. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Adventure a guess, the older you are, the more often you've said this. (laughs) You have have fanciful ideas about the good old days, and if it were just like it were then. Solomon says it's not wise. One of the reasons is I think we, we tend to forget the evils that existed in that time. We only remember the good stuff. And we think, if only now we're more like then. But that's it's just not true. But I think there's something else here. Solomon says it's not wise to dwell on the past as if those were the good old days and to stay stuck back there, trapped in your memories, drawing on memories of when you were prom, king, or prom queen or, or, or uh, captain of the football team, something like that. In Proverbs, Solomon says the glory of young men is their strength and the honor of old men is their gray hair. And I'm beginning to own that compliment. That's affirming for me. But he says, the, the glory of young men is their strength, and the honor of old men is their gray hair. That can actually also be translated, the pride of young men is their strength. The dignity of old men is their gray hair. And We admire the strong, but we respect the wise, don't we? We admire the strong, but we ex- respect the wise. I admire Olympic athletes. I don't, I don't know how much there's respect. Maybe, you know, I don't know. But that's not why I'm looking at them, right? They have my attention because of their strength. And with age, generally speaking, comes wisdom. Not always, unfortunately. There are old fools, and they're usually the ones who are stuck back there trying to relive their glory days. They've tried to stay young, they've tried to stay hip and relevant to no avail, and what they have forfeited is the wisdom that should come with age. Verses eleven and twelve, it's it's good to grow old and be wise, Solomon is saying. Gain wisdom and keep it, protect it like money. It's an advantage to you, and it preserves the life of the one who has it. And then read verse thirteen. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? We've talked about the providence of God a lot in this series. We've talked about how the providence of, uh, providences of God can, can confound us and frustrate us. It's unpredictable what God sends. We don't like unpredictable. <laughs> but it's good. We've said that in previous messages. It's good, and you can see that it's good if you're not holding on to your self-sufficiency. You know, if you're still relying on your own strength all the time, you're going having your weakness constantly exposed to you, constantly being reminded how dependent you really are on God, it's just going to hurt more. If you're still just so hard-headed that you're just going to do it in your own strength, whatever it is, you're going to go your own way, you're going to carve your own path, it's just going to be more painful (laughs) when he shows you you are weak those unexpected providences of a God that interrupt our lives, they break us of our self-sufficiency. And that can be painful, but that's a good thing. It's in those moments that the words that that Ryan read from uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12 this morning become our words. And we can say them and mean them, right? Paul says that God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. That is why, for the sake of Christ, I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardship and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That's good for us, those unexpected hardships. They're purifying like, like, like... chaff being separated from wheat or the dross being taken from the silver so all that's left is the good stuff christ in you the hope of glory we we want that that refining and verse 14 sums that up a little bit more and says we should be joyful in prosperity and then be reminded in the adversity that god has made one as well as the other he brings both the times of prosperity and adversity, and they're both good for us if we can let go of our self-sufficiency and recognize what it is that God is doing in that. The providences of God can and do confound us and frustrate us, but they are good. All right, we got through the, the step-by-step little stepping stones going through each one of those standalone statements in Proverbs. Or, or the, the Proverbs in, in Ecclesiastes 7. So let's take on the rest of the chapter. I'm going to read the uh, chapters, uh, or chapters, verses 15 through 19, and then we'll wrap it up reading the, the rest of the 21 through 29, all right? So let's look at chapter, or, uh, verse 15. He says, In my vain life I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evildoing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man. More than ten rulers are in a city. So when you read this at first glance, it seems like Solomon's bad-mouthing wisdom and righteousness all of a sudden. Like, what happened? Is he just in a mood? Like, what happened here? He, you know, he's, he's bad-mouthing wisdom and righteousness. Verse 16, it looks like he's suggesting we shouldn't be too righteous or too wise, but we shouldn't be too foolish or wicked either. Everything in moderation, he must be saying, right? Right? Uh, Be not overly wise or righteous. Be not overly wicked or foolish. A little of everything is good, but too much of anything is bad. Is that what he's saying? These are literally some of the most misunderstood verses in the entire Bible. That's not an overstatement. They really are. People come to this and and, and flip out and draw wrong conclusions all the time because they don't use the entire Bible to interpret them. And you do, by the way, that's how you interpret the Bible. If you don't now, start now, okay? That's how you interpret the Bible because we know it is God-breathed. He gets the final word on what it means. So as we think about that, we let let God speak for himself in all of his word in these verses. Is Solomon telling us to sin in moderation? No. And again, the the Hebrew is a sort of cheat sheet. It hints at this idea of of, uh, being wise in in your own eyes, being wise in your own estimation. That's kind of what's there. But the reality is you don't even need to read the Hebrew to get this idea because context, right? We have the context of what Solomon has just said in the previous verses about righteousness and wisdom and elsewhere in the chapter and elsewhere in the Bible and what he's talking about in wisdom right after these verses. We don't have to look any farther than just a paragraph to be able to figure out he's not just condoning sinning in moderation. It's not what he's saying. Wisdom can't make straight what God has made crooked. He's said that already, Remember? So let's use that as our sort of interpretive tool. Wisdom can't make straight what God has made crooked. What he's saying is, you can't have all your burning questions about the providences of God answered in this life. Wisdom won't bring you behind the curtain to really see the hand of God and how he's moving and what he's doing and how he's orchestrating all of human history for his purposes. And he says, the righteous die as well as the evil, so don't pride yourself on your self-righteousness. That's the clue there okay? Your righteousness isn't going to save you. You will not live forever by your righteousness. It won't save you. So Solomon isn't counseling us to sin in moderation. He's saying if there's such a thing as too much wisdom or too much righteousness, it's being wise in your own eyes and being self-righteous. That's the opposite of what we want. It leads us to self-centeredness, self-absorption, and pride. What he says to do instead is fear God. Verse 18, and if we've been paying attention, that's Solomon's answer for everything. That's what he keeps saying over and over. That's what he keeps counseling his people to do. Fear God. And in fact, that's the, that's the thesis statement of the entire book of Proverbs, right? Proverbs 1, 7. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Solomon's not bad-mouthing wisdom then, at least not godly wisdom. And we can know he's not because literally everywhere else he highly recommends it. And he finishes this statement saying wisdom essentially gives strength in a world that takes. It's stronger than 10 rulers who are in a city, verse 19. All right, let's read the rest of the chapter. Let's start at verse 21, go through verse 29. Do not take to heart all the things that people say. Lest you, I'm, I'm sorry, let me go back to verse 20. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright but they have sought out many schemes. There's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Don't take it to heart when people sin against you because we're all sinners and you've sinned against other people too. And now he's trying to figure out by wisdom why, why that is. And he goes on to talk about a little bit more how he's, he's tested things by wisdom. And here's what he's found. Here's been his conclusions. First, number one, that in the created order there exists an external force that tempts us. And he personifies that tempting force in verse 26 with the adulterous woman from, from Proverbs chapter seven, the lady folly character of the book of Proverbs. We are tempted and lured into sin, and we are inclined to take the bait. We are prone to fall into traps and snares. And what he's pointing to, though, is that these traps and snares, they exist. There is an external force that that pulls at our hearts in the wrong directions. That's, That's part of what he's found out about the scheme of things and why there's no one who ever sins. And then the second thing he finds out about the scheme of things and why man sins is because man's a sinner. He sins because he's a sinner. That's how he concludes the passage. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. So yes, there's an external force that tempts us. There's an enemy that leads us astray with traps and snares, but we voluntarily go because even though God made us upright, we choose to go our own way. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's no fear of God before man's eyes. Everyone does what is right in his own eyes. There are none righteous, not even one. These verses sound familiar. Solomon's just agreeing with the rest of the Bible. He's saying, can't find a righteous man because there aren't any. There are none. Because we've wandered from God. In Isaiah 53 says, We all like sheep have gone astray, each one turned to his own way. I love that verse in Isaiah because right there you you have the bad news and the good news. Right? The bad news is that. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, and each one has turned his own way. But the good news is, the next part, which reads, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. That's the good news. What's Solomon just got done telling us? You know, kind of coming coming up to a conclusion here, what's Solomon just got done telling us in all this? Wisdom's good. Get it. Keep it. Protect it right? Righteousness is good. Do that. Be moral. More of that. That's good. It just won't save you. You'll never make it out alive. <laughs> no matter what you do, you'll never make it out alive. So you better get right with God before you go. Great. How do I do that? How, do I, how does one get right with God? Which God? Right? Because there's a lot of them, you know? So summing up here, there are only two religions in the world. I want you guys to remember this. Like really grab hold of this with both hands, okay? Because it's really easy to get bogged down with what every religion believes and feel like you've got to have a PhD in every religion to be able to talk to anybody about the gospel and share your faith with them. You have to contextualize everything to death. No, you don't. No, you don't. So remember this. This is important. There are only two religions in this world, one of human achievement and one of divine accomplishment. That's it. That's it. At their core, every other religion teaches some form of do more good than bad so that you can be rewarded by God, that you can earn or deserve forgiveness or salvation or whatever it is that they call it in their system. But there's always some form of do good enough to get it. Build a good resume, embellish a little if you have to. Human achievement. Christianity is the only religion that says your best isn't good enough. Your best just isn't good enough. God has to intervene and accomplish what you could not achieve. Your religion is one of divine accomplishment. Losing is a teacher. We talked about that. Practically, there are lessons that it can teach us in this life and how we can gain eternal life. Losing hurts, but we gain a lot by losing. Jesus says, as we mentioned, whoever tries to keep his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. And what will a man profit if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul? So the solution, in all cases, whether you're a believer or unbeliever, is to turn to Christ. Maybe for the first time, maybe for the 110 billionth time. Turn to Christ. Surrender hurts. It feels like defeat every time. It feels like defeat, but God makes it so plain in his word that that, that pride in you that, that makes you desire to belong to yourself, that's so hard to let go of, just letting go of yourself and your aim and life and everything else, that, that pride is the very thing that separated you from God in the first place, and it has to be broken Not fixed up, not not shined up, not polished and mended and put back together. Broken. It has to be broken for you. And it has been. It died with Jesus on the cross. His loss was our gain. His loss was our gain. And praise God, we gain by losing because we would have never won. We never stood a chance. Give that some thought this week. Particularly give some thought to these two questions. Am I rightly identifying my difficulties as divinely appointed teachers or tutors in my life? And is my righteousness coming from a place of pleasing my Father in heaven or impressing Him? Am I rightly identifying my difficulties as divinely appointed teachers in my life? And is my righteousness, which is a good thing, Solomon said it, is my righteousness coming from a place of wanting to please my Father in Heaven or wanting or feeling the need to impress Him? Pray that God would meet you in those moments of self-reflection, those moments of self-reflection of good. The sad face brings a glad heart. Pray that God would meet you in this moment.